You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week we are in conversation with Dennis Misney. Uh, now, Dennis is the CEO of the Lemon Foundation, uh, which is the largest educational funder in Brazil. Uh, and I sat down a few weeks ago now for a really interesting conversation with Dennis about work that they've done during the pandemic, pivoting to uh, providing vaccine and supporting the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, trials, particularly in Brazil, which is a new departure for them. And I talked to him about why they had got involved in that, what he felt they'd been able to bring uh, to the party uniquely as a foundation and what that showed about the strengths of philanthropy and the importance of collaboration between the public and private and philanthropic sectors. Uh, We also talked about Lemon Foundation's more normal work um, supporting education in Brazil. Uh, We talked about the impact of the COVID pandemic on school uh, and education in Brazil and, and what that might mean for the future. We talked about the work the Lemon Foundation has done, which is really interesting in developing longer term leadership. Uh, and some of the opportunities in doing that and some of the challenges when it comes to things like measuring impact. Um, We also got some really interesting insights from Dennis on the wider landscape of philanthropy and civil society in Brazil, um, where there were some opportunities and where there were some challenges, what the relationship with government was like, uh, and much more besides. Uh, So without further ado, uh, let's go into the interview. I will be back at the end for usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. Uh, so I'm here with uh, Dennis Misney. Hi, Dennis. Hi. Uh, and Dennis is the CEO of Lehman Foundation. I hope I've got the pronunciation as, as authentic as I can uh, there. Um, and Lehman is a, a very large foundation focusing on ed- education uh, in Brazil. And it's great to have you on the podcast. Maybe the best place to start is if you could say a bit, um, you know, in your own words about, you know, uh, the foundation and what work you do there. Well, first, it's it's a pleasure uh, to to be here and uh, to have the opportunity to discuss uh, philanthropy and philanthropy in Brazil and how we're looking at it uh, with you and your audience. So thanks for having me. Uh, the Lemon Foundation is a is a Swiss foundation uh, in origin, but uh, family foundation focused on uh, helping Brazil become a more developed and fair country. We believe the reason why Brazil has not arrived there yet is because we are not really managing our most well, our most important resource, which is people, right? Uh, uh, Unfortunately, we are not allowing for all our people to fulfill their potential. And this is ultimately what we believe the foundation role should be. So we look at two areas where we can hopefully make a difference. One, as you mentioned, is is K-12 education, basic education. Uh, We want to ensure that all K-12 students in Brazil are going to finish high school ready for life. 
so ready to to you know make choices to go to higher education to 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 a fruitful life and contribute to the country um and the second thing that that uh, we aim to do is to create a network of very talented people who are going to dedicate their lives to tackling some of Brazil's most social, pressing social problems. So in a way, we are not taking care of our talent when we are when school is failing them, when you know 50% of our kids are not literate by age eight, or when only you know less than 10% finish high school knowing math at the adequate level. So this is a very clear way where we're failing our people. And the other way is when we're not allocating our best people to our most difficult problems, right? When when as a society we're not attracting, rewarding, valuing the professionals who go into politics, into government, into academia, into the not-for-profit sector and things like that. So these are the two big things that that we're trying to help change in Brazil. Great. And I certainly I want to come back and, and talk more about your, your work around education and around leadership uh, in a moment. Um, where where I'd, I'd just like to talk first is about the, the work that you've been doing in um, helping to trial the, the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID vaccine in, in Brazil, because I think it's it's really interesting and it's something obviously that, that's kind of caught uh, you know attention in, in the news, uh, certainly within in the philanthropy world. I guess, could you say a bit about why the foundation got involved in that work and, and how that sort of fits within your normal focus or whether it's something you've deliberately pivoted to that, that isn't within your normal remit? Yeah, so when, when COVID uh, first arrived, now unfortunately more than a year ago, as most philanthropies, we thought, what can we do to help? And our immediate focus was in education, right, which is uh, one of our core areas. And so we wanted to make sure that uh, schools that were closed, we could ensure that kids uh, from public schools would be able to continue their education uh, online on distance learning. Brazil doesn't have a tradition around online learning or distance learning. So this was a, a big operation to make sure that that Brazilians, Brazilian kids had high quality content, had connectivity access and, and other ways to uh, uh, have access and, and engage with school and, and therefore not miss a full school year. So this was our immediate response. About two months after uh, we started that, in by by you know end of April, uh, beginning of May, we started to discuss at the foundation what else we could do. And in a way, as you mentioned, it was kind of a pivot in a way because we are not working with health, uh, particularly not working with vaccines. But we wanted to go around the world and ask some of the top experts around the world what we could do as a philanthropic uh, organization that could make a difference for our country. And it's interesting because although it was almost a year ago, uh, the best advice we got was you should be focusing on vaccines, right? Uh, Brazil is kind of out of the map in vaccines. Brazil is not participating, was not at the time in international forums around vaccines. So there was a big risk that Brazil would not have access to vaccines, even if we found effective vaccines in a short period of time, which was a big if at the time. And then I think this was how we started thinking about it. We were approached by by, uh, Andrew Pollard uh, from Oxford University, the leader of the Oxford vaccine, and they wanted to do a trial uh, in Brazil. And we saw this as a a kind of a call for action, and we decided to fully fund the study in Brazil. Uh, This was approved in less than a day uh, from our board. And the trial, thankfully, now we know it was a big risk, but it was very successful. Uh, the vaccine was ready. And then we focused on 
how we could guarantee that Brazil would have access to that vaccine. Having a trial in Brazil certainly helped, uh, but we wanted to make sure that if the vaccine was, vaccine was successful, that we could make it available for all Brazilians. This led to a second endeavor, which was to build a consortia with other philanthropic organizations and to fund a few crews, a Brazilian public institution who does uh, vaccines over 120 years from now, and to be able to, to improve their, their uh, infrastructure, to be able to receive the technology from AstraZeneca and be able to produce the Oxford vaccine in Brazil. So this was, uh, again, that, that work. Brazil is now uh, inoculating millions of people already uh, with the Oxford uh, vaccine. Uh, we'll have 100 million doses uh, by the end of this semester. And in the next semester, this factory that was built with philanthropic support will be now produ fully producing the vaccines in Brazil and expecting to produce another 100 million doses. So we, we got very, very involved in vaccines. We never thought we were going to be doing that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, hap it's, it's, it's happening and it's helping uh, Brazil. And hopefully uh, this will be a good contribution. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's a few things you mentioned there um, around you know, notions like risk uh, and also speed and, and I guess flexibility. Do you think those are unique attributes that you were able to bring as a philanthropic foundation that perhaps um, the, you know, the private sector or, or the public sector might have struggled to do? It, it, was there something genuinely additional that you brought to, to the party? I think so. Uh, it's it's funny because I, I've been working in the not-for-profit sector for over almost 20 years now. Every time we talk about one of the edges of philanthropy is taking risks, right? But a lot of times when you talk to people around philanthropic institutions, people never talk about those risks, right? In the end, I think we, we say this is an advantage, but I don't think we take enough risks uh, as a sector. And I think this area of uh, vaccines or any kind of in investment in science is, is very, very risky. And it was hard uh, for the Brazilian government, for example, to be able to approve funding for vaccines that were not proven because of the regulations and because how things work. So for us, I mean, we could do it, right? And so so I think taking being willing to take the risk, I think was was important. The speed to I mean it's it's not hard for a university like Oxford to get funding for a trial. The problem is how long it takes. So again, here I think, and they're probably family foundations like ourselves are even more flexible because it's it's a very easy decision making process. And so I think that also helped. But the the thing that that we like the most is just this ability to collaborate. I think. A lot of the impact that we were able to to build around uh, uh, the, the past 10 years at the Lemon Foundation were around like putting different people around the table, having access to the best exper experts in Brazil and abroad, leveraging kind of the capabilities that Brazil has. And I think here we saw all of that, right? It was not possible to make a trial only with money or willing to take the risks if it were not for you know, the many, many uh, experts at Oxford and at Brazil, at, at the Federal University of Sao Paulo, uh, who was ready to conduct the trial. This would not, it would not be possible to build a factory unless you'd had like private sector expertise and they came to on board. And you, if you didn't have few crews, you know, this public institution, government institution over a hundred years old uh, uh, doing that. So, so I think when we depend on our own resources only, I think we are, you know, we're not, 
the best, uh, uh, most effective uh, organizations. I think we can make a difference in the philanthropic sector when we are able to kind of gather different expertises around the table, different sources of funding, uh, different sources of, of knowledge, and kind of organize in a way that you make it happen faster than it would it would in, in, in regular times. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've heard other people, certainly in the foundation world, saying that increased collaboration is one of the, the sort of bright points that's come about often through necessity as a result of the pandemic. Do, do you have a sense of that happening in Brazil? And do you think it will result in, in a sort of longer term trend towards more collaboration within the philanthropic sector and between philanthropic organizations and, and the public and private sector? Oh, I, I certainly hope so. And we are seeing encouraging signs. But I think everything should start with recognizing how hard the things we're trying to hard are, right? And when I say we, it's not we, the Lemon Foundation. We, I think for decades, we looked at philanthropy, right, as doing good, helping out, giving back, which is all great and important, and we need more of that. But I think we haven't allocated our best people necessarily to this sector. And I'm not talking only about the philanthropic sector. I'm talking about the big social problems that we face in society. I don't think we have valued this. I don't think that's a Brazilian problem. I think it happens all over the world. We are not very good at, at recognizing that some of the hardest uh, of, the, of the, the, the worst problems we have um, in our public life are actually very hard to solve. I think many times uh, philanthropy and the private sector look at those problems like public education at scale or, you know, uh, combating a pandemic or reducing urban crime or thinking about climate change. And they think, oh, the only problem there is, you know, I'm not the one solving. Like if with my, you know, 30 years of experience in banking or as an investor or something, I would have solved this in 20 minutes. Or if my company was in charge of all the schools, everything would be easy. And it's simply not true, right? The reason why these problems are persistent is because they are super hard to to solve. And I think we need to put our brightest minds to solve them. And we need to collaborate and and really to have like, this this needs to be, you know, full-time jobs, especially in developing countries where bureaucracies are not that valued. If you look at the UK, if you look at France, if you look at Singapore, many other Asian countries, uh, uh, you know, you have a, a value in bureaucracy and working for the government, you have a, a high level. But, but I think we need more of that uh, in general around the world. And it starts with recognizing that the issues that we're trying to face are extremely complex. And when you're dealing with something that is very complex, you have to build a, 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 a network uh, to solve it, right? You have to look at every angle and you have to uh, uh, work together. So I'm seeing more of that uh, definitely in Brazil around the pandemic. I hope to see this as a trend for the long term. Yeah, I think that's fascinating to hear because it, it goes to something else I've heard in other conversations around people saying one of the challenges has often been the element of uh, funder ego that will come when an organization or an individual wants not only to contribute to solving a problem but to be to seen as the one that has the solution and to get the attribution and and, and recognition for that and I, and I guess having the humility to accept that no one sector or institution can solve some of these hugely uh, tricky challenges by themselves is really important. Um, I, I just wanted to ask um, on the vaccine as well I mean you, you talked about 
the your ability to take risk as a as a foundation there and i guess there's one element of that which is the risk that the you know the vaccine that, that you were working with would turn out not to be effective um and you were able to take on board that risk i suppose it, you know it's it's latterly become clear that there are all sorts of controversies rumbling around vaccines and their distribution and perceptions of them are are you did you sort of take into account the risks associated with that more at a kind of political or reputational level and were those things that you were also willing to to absorb as a as a philanthropic institution i think for us one important aspect on supporting this particular trial and this particular vaccine was the fact that it was you know, being developed by a, a world-class institution like Oxford, but also because Oxford, on their agreement with AstraZeneca, established that this was going to be a, a vaccine that would be sold without any kind of profit uh, for the, at least while the pandemic lasted. So I think this was extremely important for our decision-making process, because I think in the end of the day, especially coming from Brazil, I mean, some vaccines are great, but they're extremely expensive. They are super hard to logistically to distribute. So they would end up only contributing to developed countries, right? And I think we saw here a, a, an opportunity for a vaccine that could really help also the developing world because of price and, and logistics. So I think this was important, uh, but of course we assume a, a many other risks like it. We're seeing the AstraZeneca is probably the vaccine that it's mostly debated around. You know, there are always uh, uh, intrigues and, and problems and everything. And so I think, I mean, in, in the middle of a pandemic, you simply need to, to jump. So there are some risks you can avoid, but there are others that are not going to be avoided at all. No, of course. Um, and, and I was wondering, actually, you sort of said it, you know, you weren't operating in healthcare before. So this was a clear pivot for you. Do you think there's any likelihood that you will stay in healthcare to, to any extent and kind of use what you've, you've learned in that, that field after the pandemic is over? I think what uh, I think in, in, you know, in the education pillar, we're not going to have a healthcare pillar like we have the education pillar. Uh, in the sense that, you know, we are really focused on sy systemically uh, 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 improving the quality of learning uh, for every single Brazilian student uh, in, in Brazilian public schools. That's, uh, we, we cannot, like, we, we don't have that kind of expertise. We cannot, it's, it would be too much on our plate. And we try to stay focused and we recognize how hard it is already, the mandate we have. But on the other pillar, on this pillar of, you know, creating these, critical mass of leaders, uh, people who are ready to dedicate their lives to tackling uh, big social problems. Uh, we definitely uh, see more and more value on that pillar. In the end of the day, you were talking about great people leading great institutions, right? And it's not necessarily because it's on, on healthcare. It could be on other areas. It could be on climate change. It could be, we don't know what the source of the next a uh, huge global problem uh, is going to be. And I think uh, investing in, in the vaccine made us realize how important it is uh, not to invest when a pandemic is happening, but how to invest like, you know, in the generation of talented people who are going to be making the decisions in science and academia, in the political world, in governments, uh, in administrations around the world, uh, to make sure that as, as a, a society in Brazil, we will be more equipped uh, uh, 
to deal with those problems that unfortunately will certainly arise, right? So I think it's less going into healthcare or doubling down, but it's definitely doubling down on leadership, capacity and dialogue, uh, uh, investing in centers of excellency that can contribute and can be looking at those different policy areas uh, that are very needed for, for a country to be able to deal with that size of problems. And and I wanted to to ask about the the leadership uh, aspect of what you do because I think it, I mean it's really interesting. It struck me as a very a kind of upstream approach to to philanthropy um, in in the sense of you know you are funding things uh, right right at the the, the start point um, and that has huge potential power in terms of the long term impact you can have. But also I guess it's that much harder for you necessarily to follow the thread all the way through to the eventual impact or to measure it. Uh, is is that something that you're sort of comfortable with in terms of your theory of change there that actually the end results might be quite diffuse or spread out in ways that you'd never foreseen but you're happy to accept that because you're you kind of buy into the idea that it's fundamentally important to build that leadership capacity i think you touched on something very it's something that we discuss a lot right so we have been investing over the past 10 years in in uh, we started giving scholarships over 10 years ago for brazilians who uh wanted to uh, really help the country forward. And if they wanted to do a master's or a PhD uh, in one of our partner institutions, so I'm talking about Harvard, MIT, Oxford, uh, Stanford. So we have six university partners uh, that uh, where we thought if we could get more Brazilians there, the theory of change was if we could get more Brazilians there and if we could convince those Brazilians to then when they come back, to come back to Brazil and to make a difference on their sector, and this uh, this could could help, right? So in the beginning, we didn't have a very structured plan, and and we started giving out those scholarships, and they started to uh, make progress and come back to Brazil. And then uh, we realized that uh, the scholarships were important, but what was aggregating more value was creating a network of all these lemon fellows, as we call them, uh, that they would. Uh, you know, be meeting each other, be supporting each other, be pushing each other uh, um, to make uh, uh, to make an impact. And we always say they don't have to give us uh, back their the money of the scholarship. They only need to give us uh, their soul, right? It's very simple. They only need to dedicate their lives to tackling a big social problem. And we have always better on a diverse set of people. We don't want one ideology, one vision. We want multiple people with very different visions. And it took many years to see that this could have an impact. And I think by 2018 or so, we started seeing that. When we started seeing, uh, for example, 20 Lemon Fellows running for office and, you know, all kinds of different parties and, and what you know, visions, and, and but running seven were elected to Congress. Now we had uh, five Lemon Fellows elected to become mayors. Uh, we have people as university presidents. We have people leading big foundations in Brazil, NGOs. Uh, um, in Brazil, people leading important uh, departments of education uh, at state and local levels and things like that. So now we're seeing this critical mass. Now we have uh, about 700 people in the network and they are, they are, they are popping and, and they make a difference in part because of the quality of the education, in part because of who they were in order to be accepted to the program before. So we cannot claim any credit for that but in part because of what they learn by being part of this network 
of dialogue and conversation and pragmatism and be evidence-based and, and dream big, you know, and, and really be committed to uh, uh, making a better country. And I think all these things we are seeing now, as you said, it's very hard to measure. It, again, it's, it's a different kind of risk. Many people, you know, people won't come back or people will be going to shifting to other sectors. But, but we think in the end of the day, uh, those 700 people and 50 more that enter every year, they, they will be able to make a, a, a big, big contribution to Brazil. And if we are not able to exactly show what the foundation contribution to that was, we don't care. Uh, we care that they are making the contribution. I think it's really interesting to to hear that because you, you have the the flexibility to 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 decide for yourself what those measures of success are, and also I guess to to have that long term time horizon, which often you know market driven organisations or those that are beholden to short term political cycles find much more difficult. So um, I think it's it's fascinating. Um, I just wanted to to come back for a moment to to the education um, uh, pillar of what you do that you were talking about earlier. You said that obviously you've done quite a lot of work in terms of responding during the the pandemic and the lockdown. And, and helping with provision of online learning resources um, there. Do, do you have any sense yet whether you think there, there will be longer term impacts on children's education in Brazil? And, and how are you thinking about that in terms of your strategy going forward? Uh, I think, unfortunately, the impacts will be very, very relevant, right? And uh, Brazil uh, closed its schools in mid-March 2020 and started to reopen them in February this year. And now they had to close again because we are reaching the, the, the worst time of the pandemic in Brazil. We are always kind of three, four months behind uh, the UK, the US, Europe. So, so right now schools are closed again and they were barely open for a few weeks, right? And so the cost is immense. We actually uh, uh, um, committed a... a um, a paper around that uh, from a Brazilian university, they estimate that in, in their worst case scenario, we could go back like three years in terms of results in, in the national learning tests. So it, this demands a, a completely different approach. So I think uh, the first thing that, that we believe and are investing in is this idea of curricular prioritization, right? What do we really need to focus on with those kids? How can we make sure we're not going to be able to cover everything on the national learning standards? Uh, so we should be doing informed choices and not, uh, you know, letting it flow. Uh, so what are the critical aspects? The one that we, we, we focus the most is literacy, right? Uh, we think it's very hard for a five or a six or a seven-year-old uh, from a low-income family with a lot of, lots of times illiterate parents uh, to have become literate in the middle of the pandemic with, you know, a bunch of online uh, classes. It's, it's very hard. So how can we make sure that we are prioritizing, allocating more teachers, uh, allocating more teaching time, uh, uh, more resources for those kids in those ages? Uh, how can we make sure we are using our classroom time for the few most important issues in our uh, national learning standards? And of course, uh, how can we uh, provide resources uh, focused on uh, remediation and, and acceleration of remediation uh, in our schools? So these are some of the 
uh, issues that we are focusing on. We, uh, but we don't have all the answers. We're still trying to figure out like what other good ideas uh, we could have to support uh, districts uh, who are going to struggle a lot this year to to deal with those kids coming. I mean, so we invested in in what it, we thought made sense platforms for for assessing where kids were when they came back to school, uh, curricular prioritization, uh, this focus on literacy, this focus on remediation, but it's probably not enough. Uh, we will need to do a lot more as a society. And I think that's not only in Brazil. I think the educational impact of the pandemic is the one that we're going to be uh, suffering from the most in the years to come. And people don't talk enough about it. No, I, I agree. And I, I certainly it's not a problem limited to Brazil. It's something I think a lot of people here in the UK, for instance, are very, very concerned about similarly. Um, I just wanted to, to to move on, if possible, um, to to talk a bit about the kind of wider context around philanthropy and, and civil society in Brazil to give people listening who might not know much about that context a sense of you know, what the philanthropy sector and the civil society sector in the country looks like, um, you know, in terms of uh, are are there lots of foundations? Are they primarily private foundations or corporate ones? Um, is is there a big pool of high net worth donors? Is there a lot of mass market giving? Um, could could you sort of in in broad terms paint a picture? Yes, sure. So Brazil has a I think compared to especially the US, we have a small philanthropic sector. Uh, we don't have the same kind of tax advantages and things like that for philanthropies to be established. Uh, uh, in Brazil, but but comparing Brazil to Brazil, we have a booming philanthropic sector. Uh, so today, uh, there is an association of the largest uh, foundations in Brazil. There are probably somewhere between 200 and 250 uh, uh, foundations um, uh, between corporate and family uh, foundations. Uh, we don't have, I think family foundations were not a tradition. I think they are becoming more of a tradition. Um, and so now you have uh, good examples of, of uh, philanthropic organizations, both from the corporate world, especially you know, the largest banks, the largest uh, uh, industries in Brazil have a tradition of corporate social responsibility. Uh, but private uh, foundations, I think, are, are growing more and more, uh, which is a good thing. Um, I think in general, so I, I talked about, I think, the tax incentives and, and the, the culture of giving Brazilians donate, right? Uh, uh, Brazilians donate money. But when you look at the pyramid of who is donating, uh, we see a lot of, of donations, you know, in, in the lower middle class, you know, people contributing to their churches, contributing to their communities. Uh, but as a proportion of their wealth. Uh, uh, the the Brazilian elite could donate way more than it does, and there are several movements in Brazil to try to encourage encourage this culture of giving and pushing people to uh, to increase. So again, it's 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 growing. Um, during the pandemic, uh, it grew a lot. There was much more giving uh, happening, about three times what would be uh, in a normal year. Um, according to some of the people monitoring donations during the pandemic. So hopefully uh, this, this will keep uh, happening. I think we have a more and more uh, professionalized uh, uh, philanthropic sector in, in, a, in a good way. 
uh, we're, we're seeing, I mean, I'm talking about kind of the top of the pyramid, right? There are hundreds of thousands of not-for-profits in Brazil. Uh, I'm talking about really the foundation, only the, the foundations and, and things that's where you have, you know, maybe a couple of hundreds or, or things like that. So, so I think the, in the foundation side, we're seeing more and more, and in, in the big uh, not-for-profits, a more uh, professional way of managing their people, of managing their results. So I, I see a lot of progress, but we are far away from where we need to be. Uh, in terms of the size and the wealth of the country, uh, we could have a, a much more robust philanthropic sector. And does the, the philanthropy that is taking place there, whether it's individual or, or foundation philanthropy, is it still is it largely directed within Brazil or is there any philanthropy going from Brazil to, to other places, either in Latin America or further afield? I think mostly is Brazil focused, right? Brazil is is a continent. Right, it's uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's 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 very large. We're talking about 220 million people, and we're talking about a, a, a large percentage of this population, unfortunately, uh, living in very very um, hard conditions. And uh, we have less of a of a tradition of an European country, or or even in the U.S. Uh, of donating abroad. I think most of the efforts, although some of the corporate foundations are becoming more and more uh, regional foundations or following you know, where the companies are going. And you have now some uh, Brazilian companies uh, who are uh, global companies uh, with origins in Brazil, like you know, Anheuser-Busch and Bev, or like uh, uh, Natura and Co. bought Avon and other uh, big companies in, in different parts of the world. So you see these kinds of companies exporting their philanthropic arm as well. But in general, I would say we're very focused on, on helping Brazil. And I just wanted one additional question on, on that. Uh, as you know, as you say, that kind of culture of philanthropy in Brazil seems to be be growing um, and getting stronger. Um, what role, if any, has the government played in that? I mean, what's the attitude of the Brazilian government towards philanthropy? Are they aware of it as as a thing that they might want to support? And and if so, are they broadly positive about it, or are they slightly cautious? I think we had governments that were. Uh, supportive of a strong civil society. It's not the case right right now. I mean, I, I don't want to get too political, but I think it's for anyone following uh, Brazilian politics, uh, we don't have a government that really, I think we, we see a government that feels threatened by a strong civil society, especially related to environmental issues, uh, to the Amazon uh, particularly, uh, and also uh, in general, uh, of us, you know, suspicious of any kind of of uh, uh, power that is decentralized, right? And by definition, in a good way, uh, philanthropy, strong society is decentralization of power. So we are not in a particularly uh, great time, let's say, in terms of support for civil society, support for uh, the strengthen of, of uh, philanthropic organizations. Just to give a very concrete idea for those who, you know, interested in this topic, in Brazil, the, well, the, the inheritance tax, for example, first of all, it's very low. You pay 4% to leave your money to your kids, but it's exactly the same tax if you donate to help the country or if you leave your money to your kids. You, you pay the same tax, right? 
So that's that's a, a quasi disincentive. When you look at the U.S., it's like if you want to leave to your kids, 50% tax. If you want to donate, zero. That makes a, a, a huge difference. I, I don't think we should only be betting on financial incentives for philanthropy. I think there is a the more important cultural aspect, right? Of of but I think it, it gives you an idea how the environment is is not very helpful uh, for uh, philanthropy. So so philanthropy that is. Uh, with exception in some areas, like if you want to support culture in Brazil, like cinema and, and theater and, 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 and literature, you have uh, big fina- uh, uh, tax incentives to do that. Uh, so there are some areas where you have tax incentives, but in general, you don't have a lot of, of incentive. And right now, the government is not particularly helpful. It's it's really interesting. And and what about the attitude of of the public? Are they you know are they positive about the idea of philanthropy? And I I ask partly because obviously there's been a sort of wave of semi populist critiques and criticisms of philanthropy certainly coming out of the US in recent years. Do you do you see any of that filtering through to the the way in which you know normal people view philanthropy in Brazil, or are they quite receptive to the idea? I think. Normal people are receptive. I think in general, uh, they like uh, civil society organizations and you know, so, or they are engaged somehow in organizations at the community level. I think there is uh, in some parts of the, uh, especially the more populous parts of, of uh, political life and their supporters, a, 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 the same narrative of you know the anti soros and and gates and this idea of oh you have this billionaires who want to rule the world so i think this this uh exists in brazil in certain um circles uh this idea of why are people i think in general it's you have people very intelligently uh fueling this idea of this trust of the very nature of philanthropy which is the the you know Actually, there is someone who's willing to donate their money to help others, right? And I think uh, there are people who are very good at uh, putting that in a very skeptical eyes and saying, really? Like, you know, why? Why would people donate money to help others? There must be a, another motive there. There must be a grand plan or a, a grand scheme. So, so I think in, in, a, in a moment of strong polarization and a lot of you know, fake news and, and all of that is uh, philanthropy is not immune uh, to that kind of attack. So I don't think in general people are distrustful, but I think there are circles of society where this rhetoric uh, penetrates. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It certainly resonates with what we're seeing, you know, more broadly in the UK and the US and, and elsewhere. Um, I'm aware that I'm in danger of, of taking up far too much of your time. Um, I just wanted to take the opportunity to say, you know, thanks ever so much for finding time to come on the podcast. It's been a fascinating you know, conversation. Um, and just before I, I let you go, is there anything um, that you'd like to point people's attention towards or any sort of final thoughts you want to leave them with? Uh, I think the Maybe the most important thought is that I can contribute to is this idea that we are not going to solve some of the hardest issues uh, facing our societies unless we are mobilizing our best people, unless we are mobilizing our best resources. We are collaborating 
we are working together and recognizing the complexity of those issues. We cannot take an amateurish uh, approach here. That that goes to the pandemic, to global warming, to uh, you know the, the the global learning crisis, uh, refugee crisis, urban safety, terrorism. There are so many hard problems. I think it's beyond time we recognize that and put our best best efforts and best people and best resources in a collaborative way to tackle them. I think that's an excellent place to to leave it, you know, with uh, looking to the future. And many thanks again, Dennis. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Dennis for finding the time to come on the podcast. Um, It was great to have a chance to talk to him. I found it really fascinating and thought, you know, I definitely learned a lot and I hope uh, you all enjoyed it too. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to various things that are relevant to to the conversation we had. If you're interested more broadly in interesting issues around charities, philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, Follow CAF on Twitter at CAF. Uh, Follow me on Twitter, if you like, uh, at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. uh, Or if you like stuff that's more about the history and sort of academic side of philanthropy, at Philiteracy. Uh, If you've got ideas for people I could talk to on the podcast or topics we could cover through sort of deep dive explorations, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next time. Bye! (laughs) 